0: Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedu, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... In order for you to be confident, you need others to be confident in you. And this is why we train the teachers. We train the teachers to support the students so that they can say, not that they will say you should go to college or college is the only way for you. But we train teachers so that they can help students understand what opportunities there are should they choose to go to college. We want people to have the option to go to college not to prescribe that college is the only path and you need adults in your life, those who have been on that journey or not to tell you this is possible for you.
1: Hey, it's Maria and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe and healthy. This episode is for you if you want to learn about a free and holistic approach that helps students prepare for the SAT and SAT tests used for admission to US colleges. This conversation is also a must listen for those who want to learn how to build confidence in underserved youth, especially those about to become first generation college students. Last but not least, those of you who are currently exploring your career direction will learn three simple questions you can ask yourself to help you make a better choice for your life and work. My guest today was born to Korean parents who fostered a sense of independence and creativity and gave their daughter the opportunity, when she was only 13, to either go back to Korea with them or stay in the US and pursue a better education. Her decision led her down a lifelong learning path, guided by her passion for pursuing what she loved and her commitment to making an impact. She has over a decade of leadership, management, and fundraising experience, primarily with organizations serving underrepresented youth. In 2020, she was named a Presidential Leadership Scholar by the program led by the Presidential Centers of George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George H. W. Bush, and Lyndon Johnson. I'm thrilled to introduce you today, Yoon Choi, the CEO of College Spring, a national nonprofit that helps schools provide free SAT and SAT preparation to students from low income backgrounds by equipping teachers with the resources and specialized training needed to close the testing and college opportunity gaps. Under her leadership, College Spring has supported hundreds of educators and provided test prep to tens of thousands of students. Prior to joining College Spring, Yoon served as the co-president at SPARC, a national nonprofit career exploration and self-discovery program for middle school students. During her time at SPARC, she transformed the organization by building strong corporate partnerships, increasing revenue, and strengthening its overall program model. Yoon earned a doctorate in Anthropology from the University of California at Irvine, a master's degree from New York University, and a bachelor's degree from Scripps College. Her published articles about testing and college access can be found in leading publications such as Inside Higher Ed, The Hackinger Report, and source Tune in to learn from an inspirational leader in the nonprofit education sector who believes deeply in the power of education to transform lives and communities. Every day, she works to expand educational opportunities so that all young people no matter their background, are equipped to learn, explore, and achieve their full potential. Let's dive right in. Hello, Yoon. Welcome to Impact Learning.
0: Thank you, Maria. I'm so glad to be here.
1: When you think of your childhood, what's your favorite
0: memory related to learning? You know, I was just talking to my husband about this the other day because he was telling me how much he did not like school growing up, but I loved going to school growing up. So, There's not one particular memory except that I just really dreaded summer vacations because that was the one time I couldn't be in the classroom with my friends, learning, absorbing new information. So I think, you know, throughout my whole childhood, I think I really always enjoyed learning. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I'm actually originally born and raised in New York to parents who immigrated from Korea. And I grew up in a really loving, laughter-filled, boisterous home, which consisted of my grandparents, my little sister. But when I was 13, actually, in the eighth grade, my world really changed. My parents decided our family would be moving back to Korea and they gave me a very big and important choice to make. They said I could either move back with them to Korea or I could move to Connecticut and live with my aunt and finish high school in the U.S. And I chose to stay, which now looking back, particularly having a niece who is currently 13, I'm like, wow, that is a very young age to be on your own apart from your family. But at the time, it was just what I decided to do. And I was fortunate to receive a scholarship to attend a great high school in Connecticut. So that's just what I did. And that was a big change for me. So when I think about those times, um, that's sort of the main story, looking back upon my childhood and sort of the shift in education for me.
1: Most of the kids at this age, I would probably think that they would go with their parents. Yeah. I guess what uh, were you thinking? What prompted you to stay? again, in the U.S. now with your aunt in a different area and different neighborhood?
0: Yeah, I think there's the sort of most children would choose to do X But then I think there's also the element of most parents might not give their child that choice. (laughs) So I think there's a couple of unique factors going on there. I think from my parents' point of view, they just wanted to afford me the opportunity to have the best education. Education is a major theme that runs in my family. My parents are educators. In fact, my family came to the U.S. so that they can get an American education. So I think that was really front-end and center for them when they were giving me this choice. From my end, although it's really hard if I'm being honest to remember what was going through my 13-year-old mind at the time, I think 13 is an age when you're looking for independence, right? We all remember those middle school years where you're looking to sort of assert yourself and that's a time of creativity and also you just don't know what you don't know. So I think there was a part of me that really felt like, wow, I could live on my own. And, you know, I also had a very wonderful relationship with my aunt and my cousin. They were a very big part of our family weekends growing up together. And so, you know, I think I was really excited about the prospect of living with them. When I thought about moving to Korea and going to Korean school, that was probably a little bit daunting for me as well. So I don't know. I just I think I just took a leap of faith. We all did. Yes, very nice. At this
1: stage now, did you already know what you wanted to study or what you wanted to become?
0: Oh, no, no, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) And I think for me, a really big theme in my life is that I'm sort of a late bloomer. And I've sort of followed paths without knowing which direction I was ultimately going to end up in. And now in hindsight, it's easy to see that just sort of surrendering and being okay with not knowing exactly where my destination was going to be was ultimately what unlocked more and more opportunities for me. And I'm doing things that I didn't actually ever have the imagination for when I was younger.
1: Mm-hmm. But you you had uh, choices. Mm -hmm. You had uh, certain opportunities. Mm -hmm. I'm sharing this, of course, you know, because we're going to talk about this versus, let's say, maybe you had uh, to go down a specific path that either the economic situation or your family decision might have, you know, taken you down. But in your case, I hear I did not know a lot but I I knew I had opportunities that I was about to explore.
0: Yes, that's true. I think the theme for me, especially when I think about how my parents raised me, was that they sort of fostered a sense of independence and creativity. So they gave me permission in many respects, emotional permission (laughs) to just sort of explore. They were not the parents who said, you need to be X when you grow up one thing they were very firm about was education and learning. But I think there was a strong faith that if you were educated, if you learned, opportunities would be opened up to you and you would have the knowledge to choose the right opportunity. And you were, in my case, my parents were very, not the traditional, traditional korean parents <laughs> have any um, would think about they were very much follow your bliss type of parents if this interests you if you are passionate about this explore it and i had a lot of freedom to do that that's beautiful so what did you decide to study in college i actually was an english literature major and i will say i think it's important to communicate this at that time had no concept or no thought in my mind about how education might lead to very specific career opportunities. So when I chose to major in English literature, it was simply because that was the one subject that I enjoyed in school. That was the one thing that my father, you asked me very early on about my fondest sort of memories in education. I actually take back my answer now. I think my fondest memories really came from these long drives that my father and I used to have. And he would tell me stories about Greek mythology or different stories from classical literature. At a very young age, and I think that opened up my mind, my interest, my imagination. So I chose English literature because I enjoyed it, not because I thought that that was going to lead to a specific career path. So again, this theme of following passion, following learning, and then just seeing what unfolds after that was really the common thread.
1: And uh, what did you decide to do after college? Did you get a paying job or did you pursue further education?
0: Yeah, paying job would have been nice. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But again, I think I was really a late bloomer. I think I didn't necessarily excel academically in high school. I was actually, I think, really adjusting to a major upheaval and change in my life, growing up in New York, going to New York City public schools. Now I'm in Connecticut in a totally new environment without my parents, without my family. So I think I was very much focused on social and cultural adjustment, not very much focused on the academics. When I got to college, I was in another brand new environment, now from Connecticut to California, adjusting to a brand new place to college. And it was very late in college that I very much began to enjoy my life as a scholar, to really enjoy what I was learning. So by the time other colleagues were looking for jobs, those paying jobs, as you as you said, I was now starting to really open my eyes to education and learning. And so So I pursued a master's degree. Again, did I ask myself, is this master's degree going to lead to a paying job? Not so much. But again, I just kept on following this thread of pursuing what I love to learn about. So I ended up in a master's program studying humanities. And it was there that I learned about this wonderful, exciting field of anthropology.
1: Tell me a little more about that. You are the first person I know. (laughs) who is an anthropologist and has done a PhD in that. So tell me more. I'd like to know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I think simply put, anthropology is the study of different cultures. And I had always been fascinated. I think this is why literature was such an exciting place for me. I was always excited by stories. I was always excited and interested in learning how things came to be, fascinated by identity and culture. And so when I got to NYU or which is where I did my masters, the summer before I ended up there, there had been this major international phenomenon at the time, the 2002 FIFA World Cup. And through that big soccer, you know, World Cup, I saw a lot of really exciting things happening in terms of global spectatorship. Korea as a nation hosting this event, and it really sparked my imagination about how global events and phenomena happen, and that is what an anthropologist does. They study these global events, these cultural events. They understand how people interpret and respond to those things, and it was through this global event I decided I wanted to learn more and study more about that, and that's what the field of anthropology is. I started taking more anthropology courses, really became fascinating fascinated with this whole way of looking at the world.
1: When did you start developing more, I guess, of a a plan of what you would do next?
0: Well, at that point, when you've invested so much into studying and your academic career, the path of being in academia starts to come into focus. And so at this point, I said to myself, "Okay, you've invested in a master's you really want to study more of this, clearly you're interested in it. And that evolved into then a PhD program. By the time you're in a PhD program, you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm probably going to be a professor. I'm meant to teach, I've invested so much time in this research. And so, you know, kind of like a ball rolling down a hill, there was momentum behind this path towards academia. And so I followed that all the way through. PhD leads to a postdoc, then you're looking for academic jobs. So I think gravity really sort of took me down that path. Mm-hmm. At which point do you make the
1: shift to the nonprofit sector?
0: I actually was in the process of doing all the job talks that academics do and applying for tenure track positions. And it was at a point when I was waiting for my dream job in academia that I also needed to make ends meet and find a job, a paying job. And so I started writing grants part-time for this nonprofit in Los Angeles. And through that process, I really learned about the need in the community I really learned about how nonprofits, education nonprofits in particular, fill real gaps in access to opportunity. And I think that was a big aha moment for me because I felt a different type of stirring in terms of my interest and fascination, potentially passion. I realized I'm somebody who wants to make a direct contribution in the community rather than somebody who wants to sit in an academic ivory tower, writing and reading about things. At that point, it was more of a stirring (laughs) and a whisper, if you will. And then sort of things ended up taking off. Mm -hmm. And then you continue to write. And then what's next? From a grant writer, I was very fortunate to become full-time for that organization, where I was the liaison between that organization and other foundations. So at this point, I was actively learning about fundraising and how that is a really important factor in nonprofit leadership. And so through that learning, I, I built a lot of experience understanding nonprofits, leadership, fundraising. And then I took that and tried to really apply that to another nonprofit, again, in the education space, this time serving middle school students and became an executive director there. And that is SPARK, right? That is SPARK, yes. And that is
1: also in uh, California?
0: That was a national nonprofit. That was also a really interesting shift and learning for me. The first nonprofit that I had the good fortune of working for was a very local Southern California institution, if you will. Moving to Spark really opened my eyes to what it was like to work for a national nonprofit. It had started in the Bay Area, expanded to Southern California, Chicago, and Philadelphia at the time. And so it was really wonderful from an experience standpoint for me of being able to lead a region, a region that was part of a national organization, and really see things come to life on the ground.
1: Mm -hmm. So now you're seeing yourself as a leader Mm -hmm. in the non-profit sector in a national organization. How has the time you spent at Spark, how has uh, it affected your leadership skills, the way you see the impact, you know, a non-profit organization creates? Take me a little bit through that so I understand, like, your evolution through the time you were at Spark.
0: So Spark, I spent about four and a half years there. So I really evolved specifically in terms of different roles, but also in my growth as, as a leader as well. I think one thing that, that was continuously reinforced for me is that I'm a doer you know, when I shifted from academia to this nonprofit space, it was because, like I said, something was stirring inside me that said, hey, you want to make a direct impact in the community. When I was at Spark, that was affirmed over and over and over again. I like to do, I like to activate, whether that's partnerships, whether that's programs, I like to get results. And I think that passion, that drive really fueled me and sustained me. And I I just realized through that process, the things that I enjoy, and I'm a firm believer that you will excel in the things that you enjoy. So I learned a lot about what I like. And I think that living into that strength area is certainly something that I try to take with me in any organization that I'm in. What am I good at? What do I enjoy? Where is my passion? Then the results are going to follow.
1: Was there anything that was challenging for you working in the nonprofit sector?
0: Yeah, I think uh, anybody listening who has worked in the nonprofit sector will definitely relate to this. But working in the nonprofit sector is tough because you are expected to do a lot with very little. And I think oftentimes you are expected to move mountains with very small teams, with very little money. And that is very challenging because that means you are working around the clock (laughs) to make things happen. But at the same time, I think that that builds a level of resourcefulness, creativity, ingenuity, to figure out how to get things done, how to do more with less. And so on the one hand, that was very challenging. On the other hand, I think that was character and skill building, because as long as you're in the nonprofit space, whether it's a very teeny tiny one to a very well-resourced one, it will be fundamentally different than working for a major for-profit company that has a lot of resources. So it's just a mindset that you learn to work with and to, to just figure out how to be effective within those constraints.
1: Mm-hmm. And I can imagine also that you really need to like what you're doing because there are many opportunities probably every day to question like, why am I here? Yeah. But if you like what you're doing, if you really care, you know, I'm not talking about like being passionate. I'm talking about, I really care for this. It's hard,
0: but I'm going to make it work. Absolutely. I think that's what connects a lot of people who work in the nonprofit space. It's this commitment to impact and commitment to mission. That is, I'll be honest with you, on my hardest days, that's where I get the inspiration. People are so, so committed And that's what fuels me. Um, And when you're the leader of an organization, you want to see that commitment. That's what keeps me going on behalf of the team that's working so hard for the students and schools that we serve. It's a a true inspiration.
1: Mm -hmm. And after working at Spark for more than four years, you moved to College Spring as a CEO. That's right. How did this change
0: happen? Yeah, so I think College Spring had a lot of things that I think really resonated with me from sort of a nonprofit model standpoint, oftentimes in nonprofits because of those resource constraints that I was referring to and because in order to make a real impact. It requires a lot of hands-on work with the community. Because of those constraints, it's often hard to scale and grow your program and to have the impact you wanna have across communities with large numbers of students. There was something about College Spring where I really saw the potential for us to be able to do that, to achieve more systemic change because of the way that we operated in partnership with schools, in partnership with districts. I love the impact of our program, and I also love the practicality of our mission. It was very clear to me that we were filling a much-needed gap. And so for those reasons, because I am somebody who really cares about the mission, somebody who wants to know that we will be able to to make an impact, I just was really attracted and and drawn to College Spring. Mm -hmm. So for those who are not familiar with College Spring, let's start there. What problem are you solving? Yeah. So College Spring's mission is to equip schools and their teachers with an SAT, ACT, and college knowledge curriculum. We do that because we want to prepare students to succeed on this exam and be able to enter college. At the end of the day, that's what we want to be able to do, to give students the opportunity to prepare for what has traditionally been a major obstacle for students on their journey into college.
1: Mm -hmm. If I am 14 years old, Mm I don't know the same way you were. I know of university and college, but what does it take? Like, how do I prepare to get there?
0: Yeah, so I'm going to answer this question by thinking about what was in my head when I was a 14-year-old. I'm talking to myself now at 14. Mm -hmm. I would say to myself, Yoon, (laughs) get it together. You think getting into college is going to be an easy process. You actually have to have a lot of knowledge about what is required. So what is required? You need to have good grades. You need to do well on this standardized test. You need to have extracurricular activities, a strong essay, recommendations. There are many elements to getting into college and preparing for this application process. One of those elements, as I said, is this SAT or ACT. It's a way for colleges to measure how you compare across the nation In terms of your academic preparedness to enter college, a lot of your fellow students are preparing for this, either with private tutors, online, and if you want to be competitive and show colleges that you are prepared for the rigors of of university, you should be prepared as well.
1: Mm -hmm. You serve more of the underrepresented, underserved youth. Yes in public schools, that they don't have access to both, you know, the knowledge and resources and tutoring. And often that correlates with the income of the family, like how much the family can afford. That's right. So what are the focal points? What is that you are trying to help them directly? Like if I'm a student, what am I getting if I'm enrolled in your
0: programs? Yeah, so first and foremost, you're getting the test preparation in school where you already are. Oftentimes, the big gap between students who come from wealthier families and students who do not is that those from wealthier families have the private tutors. They have the parents saying, study for this test, go online, you know, do practice problems. And also most importantly, there's a motivation, to go to college and succeed in that way our students we want to make sure that they have the ability to prepare just as much as the students with the means to do so do and it's important that that happens in school not an extracurricular class not something that they have to pay extra for but something that is taught by their teachers during the school day For us, that is a very important way in which one, we're building capacity at the school level, we're building teacher capacity, but also surrounding students with the resources they need. One very important thing about our program is it's not simply test preparation only for this test. Of course, that is a really big component of it, but we show students why this test is important. Why this matters for college, why college is even important, how this test can unlock financial aid, how this can help them get into certain majors. We believe that this knowledge is what fuels or should fuel rather students to prepare for this test. And along the way, as they're preparing, we also help them with building their motivation and their confidence to prepare and study for this test. So it's a very holistic program that happens over the course of an academic year. It's not just a a test prep boot camp where you have a tutor come in, you know, really drill you on, on how to do well for the test. It's a much more holistic academic year program that's embedded into the school day. And
1: how do you design the program? Do you have like a package that you offer to the teachers? that they can learn from and then teach their students? Or do you work with them to
0: co-develop? How does it work? Yeah, so we at College Spring have a team, many of whom were classroom teachers themselves and curriculum experts who developed our proprietary curriculum. So in addition to the curriculum, we also developed the training All of those things are delivered to the teachers. We deliver the diagnostic testing for the students and we use that data to show the teachers, hey, Maybe your students need more reinforcement in this area. So from the teacher's point of view, they have everything that they need to seamlessly deliver the college spring lesson in their actual class. From the student's point of view, they are getting the lesson. They're doing the testing. They're building their confidence over the school year. Mm-hmm.
1: So what you talked about, knowledge, skills, and motivation is what you frame together as the test confidence. Exactly. Which I found very unique. I read two of the stories you have on the website, and we will put all the links in the show notes. And you basically highlight the stories of two young women who are preparing, you know, to go to uh, college, to go to university. And one thing that resonated with me a lot is that they both, very different uh, people, very different interests, backgrounds, insights, they both talked about how the program helped them to change their mind about how overwhelming the preparation is and how they could see a way forward that this big task now is becoming step-by-step action that I can take, and they both talked about it. And I thought to myself, I'm also trying to think, you know, how I was thinking when I was 16 and 17. Yeah. And I thought to myself, this skill that we are learning that anything that is a large project or something that seems overwhelming, a challenge, a project, something unfortunate, if we think about it like a step-by-step, it is easier to tackle it. And this is exactly what these two young girls talked about. That's
0: right. Yes. So is this a common result or outcome? Yes, and intentionally, intentionally, we've designed the program so that we can build out that step-by-step confidence building. So in contrast to some other, say, for-profit test prep companies or, or tutors, usually this happens within a couple of months, a very sort of short amount of time. For us, we really take the entire academic year. It takes time to build confidence. You don't just wake up one day prepared. You don't wake up one day confident. We intentionally make sure that there's a long horizon in which students can step-by-step build the foundational skills that they need in math, in English and language arts, and then build their confidence to work towards that goal.
1: Mm There is another aspect now with me, it resonates a lot because I come from a family that my sisters and I were the first three to go to college, university. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I can imagine that also you serve youth that they are in the same, you know, situation. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you speak to what it takes to build confidence in a young, you know, man or young woman who don't see anyone else? going down the college path or the higher education path? And like, what does it take to actually help them see that there are more options for them?
0: Yeah, I would say at a high level, it takes confidence from other people that you can go into college and succeed. That is a really, really important factor in breeding the confidence in others, So much so that I'll say it again, in order for you to be confident, you need others to be confident in you. And this is why we train the teachers. We train the teachers to support the students so that they can say, not that they will say you should go to college or college is the only way for you, but we train teachers so that they can help students understand what opportunities there are should they choose to go to college. We want people to have the option to go to college not to prescribe that college is the only path. And you need adults in your life, those who have been on that journey or not, to tell you this is possible for you. So that is a big part of what we're trying to do through the school teachers, through the administrators, to give students that confidence. That's one of the most important things. And I would say everything else is secondary to that. Sure, you can give students the knowledge, the motivation, the skills, what we call test confidence, but students, people are very intuitive. They know you can be telling them all the tips and tricks for the SAT, but if they know and sense that you actually don't think they'll do well on the test, they are going to internalize and absorb that message. So I would just answer your question in that way as the main thing. Everything else pales in comparison to that.
1: Yeah. And when I think of myself, again, I can easily put myself in the shoes of these students you serve. I had people, not many, but enough Mm -hmm. to believe in what you said, believe in the possibility and guided me Mm -hmm. and offered, offered resources. That was enough that people believed in me, including my mom and a couple of teachers, and then that they offered me the best resources that we had available to prepare and do the hard work and study to get, you know, through the exams and everything and basically get accepted. These were exactly the things that I needed 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And I think it's more or less universal. I Absolutely agree with you. You you have written about, and I love your writing because it's brave Mm. and beautiful, but it's brave. And I want to talk about a couple of things that resonated with me and I want to hear your thoughts. What is college for? What is higher education for? Some people believe it's to make a good salary and retire happily ever after. What is really college for?
0: That's a really good question. And I have to say, you're talking to a former academic. (laughs) So (laughs) I obviously believe deeply the theme that resonates throughout this entire conversation is education. And like I said, I was somebody who wanted to be part of the academy, spent a lot of time within education. And I would say, first and foremost, of course, there are all the benefits that come, the very practical benefits that come from a college degree. Absolutely. But for me, first and foremost, I would say that college does two main and important things. One, it teaches you how to think. It teaches you how to think. And I think, especially in this world where there are a lot of sound bites and easy one, two, three tutorials, you know, th- that's not the way to actually think. It teaches you critical thinking, which I think is so important and invaluable. You're not going to get that online. The second thing is you're surrounded by a network of people. And You know, we at College Spring, we are striving to be a more anti-racist organization, and we think about all the ways in which certain people have advantages. And that network is extremely important because that can unlock opportunities for, for so many. And with our students in particular, our primary goal is to unlock opportunities for them. And so the network that you get in college, the way of thinking that you receive in college, I think is is absolutely critical. Yeah.
1: And you brought it full circle now because it is about learning to see and developing this critical thinking, but also becoming aware and learning how to explore options and possibilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, you started with one path, the academic path, and then you explored another one because you had certain opportunities and, you know, working in certain ways. There are many people who don't have access to that. It was the same for me. I I also thought I would be a teacher later on, a professor after, you know, my PhD. But then because I had experience during my commercial postdoc, I realized that I wanted to solve real life problems. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to work for a company, for profit organization, different paths. But I think our education had already equipped us with the critical thinking, ability to reach out and find resources, whatever we had available, and then make choices. Absolutely. And if you take away all of that at 16 and 17, how would we know? We wouldn't. Yeah,
0: that's right. I always, especially at Spark, because we were a middle school mentoring program that exposed students to different potential career opportunities, I always used to say, it's hard to be what you don't see. And I think going back to sort of what is college for, you're seeing and learning a lot of new things that you might not typically have been exposed to. And the same for me, I had no idea what the nonprofit space was about. My parents still, they'll ask me, what is it that you do? (laughs) What is a nonprofit? And so I think I just, I was exposed to it. I happen to see, oh, there's something called a grant writer. There are, you know, you have to be exposed to things. You have to meet new people. and These are all of the things that lead to new opportunities. Mm -hmm.
1: Maybe help us understand a little bit why this is important for the individual person to make their life better, but also for society. Exploring higher education and deciding to go to college, if that's, you know, students want to do, Mm -hmm. is going to help them make their life better, also their financial situation better. Mm -hmm. What about the role of higher education in uh, increasing equity and inclusion? And uh, from that, helping us solve some of the other social challenges we are facing. How do you see the role of higher education for society.
0: Sure. So college still remains one of the most definitive steps one can take toward creating a successful future. So for example, lifetime earnings more than double for those who earn a bachelor's degree compared to those who do not. But having a college degree is also associated with a host of other benefits, College degree holders are 44% more likely to report very good or excellent health, nearly five times less likely to be in prison or jail, and significantly more report that they are happy. So it is, of course, possible to secure a living wage without a four-year college degree. Absolutely. But it is also true that the global economy is changing very rapidly. This goes back to what I said earlier about teaching you how to think. And most people in this new global economy don't stay in a single profession their whole career. So we're increasingly, we're seeing that a college degree is required as a basic credential for people who want to switch career paths. And there are many professions that are simply closed off to you if you don't have a college degree. So it's about access to the types of different professions. It's not just money and the living wage, right? We want students to be able to keep their options open so that they can, of course, make a decent income, but also 30 years out as economic needs and reality shift that they would be prepared for that. And again, there are so many other benefits related to health and all these disparities that were exposed, particularly during this pandemic. It's very clear to see that those who had the jobs like I have, you know, the ability to be able to work from home, all of those disparities were really highlighted.
1: That's a great segue now to talk about your experience during the pandemic. Take us through what was in your mind in
0: March of 2020. Uh, Well, I think first and foremost, it was, is this really happening? (laughs) Or what is happening right now? Is this going, how long is this going to last? You know, in our case, the direct and immediate impact that we saw was that the SAT and ACT tests were being canceled because those happen, obviously, all in person. Schools were shutting down, all travel shutting down. And so, very quickly, we realized that this was not going to be business as usual. And that was an opportunity for us as an organization, I would say, to really act quickly and make some educated guesses about what would be happening in the K through 12 and higher education space. And in our case, we made the bet that schools would be closed. We made the bet that tests probably would not would continue to be delayed. And so as a result, what we did was we thought about how to make our program as flexible for our school partners as possible. And for us, that meant creating a virtual program overnight. We went from a program that was delivered 100% in school, side by side with the teachers, to now it is fully virtual, where most of our offerings can be delivered online.
1: Give us an idea of how many schools, how many teachers, how many students are we talking about?
0: Yeah. So at that time, we had about 50 plus partners across Northern California, Southern California, and New York. Um, And we were serving a little bit under 5,000 students.
1: Wow. And um, as we are progressing now, we are more than a year after.
0: Yeah.
1: How is the situation evolving and uh, How are the students you are serving? How
0: are they, I guess, making progress? This has been a very tough year, very tough year for for everybody. And in the context of education, what we're seeing from this pandemic year was that it was very difficult for students to be engaged. It was very difficult for students who did not have access to technology And our teachers had a very hard time adjusting to online learning and instruction delivered in that way. And so the access that we typically have to student data has been very challenging this year. There just aren't a lot of students that are willing to take the test. There is just an overall, I would say, challenge to getting the data that we previously have been able to learn from. Mm -hmm. Are there specific ways
1: that you had to help other teachers or students,
0: whether it was devices
1: they had access to or Wi-Fi or training?
0: Yeah, so in our case, we were in many respects well positioned to help the teachers during this period of transition, So all of the training that we provide, we made sure to really focus on how they could be very good instructors in this virtual space. In terms of access to devices and things like that, it was really wonderful to see the community coalesce around the students. And it wasn't us that provided the devices per se, but and many of the communities, districts were partnered with corporations and with others to make sure that students were able to get access. Having said that, of course, not all students were able to get access. That is a much larger problem. But in our case, we were able to see the different bright spots and we were able to help teachers navigate some of those challenges.
1: Mm-hmm. As we sit now, it's 2021. Has anything changed? Like as you see your way forward and the impact you want to create, is there anything that you are seeing in a different way or you are changing your approach to continue
0: to increase your impact? Absolutely. We as an organization want to make sure that the SAT and ACT that we help teachers and students prepare for is something that benefits them beyond college admissions So many people don't realize that the test actually helps students unlock different majors, unlock financial aid. These scores can take the place of other testing that students might have to do. In general, there are many benefits to this. So we are trying to make sure that we are serving places like Texas or Florida or Michigan, places where the test is actually designed to help students in a variety of different ways beyond college admissions. So that's where we're focusing our efforts. We want to make sure that Wherever we are, whoever we serve, we're able to create opportunities for students who traditionally have not been able to access them.
1: Mm -hmm. What do you see in the future of K-12 education and higher education? And more specifically, are there untapped opportunities that we, we really need to focus our efforts on to, again,
0: to continue to make an impact? Absolutely. I think what this pandemic has taught us is there are a couple of genies that have gotten out of the bottle that I don't think are going to be put back in. So one of those things, I believe, is the way in which technology enhances education. I think what we're going to be seeing is more blended learning where students are learning some things online, some things in the classroom. I really think there's been a big push towards education and digital enhancements. Um, And we at College Spring are really excited about that. I I mentioned the virtual program that we sort of created as a band-aid to the solution overnight. We are really excited about deepening our own skills and really investing in that. So teachers and students have the resources that they need to get the instruction digitally. So that's one thing. The second thing as it relates to testing is I think that higher education is going to continue to adopt test optional policies. And for those who uh, may not be familiar with test optional, all that means is that the test, um, the standardized SAT and ACT scores are not a requirement. But I think people, when they hear test optional, have somewhat of an erroneous view that because these tests are optional, they are no longer going to matter. That's actually not the case. What this will mean for students is that these tests will be a data point. And what we know from talking to higher education institutions is that more data when evaluating a student is better than less. So it doesn't mean that these test scores are no longer going to matter. They will continue to matter, but potentially maybe not in the high stakes way in which they used to. This is why we as an organization are thinking about all the ways in which students can prepare for this test and unlock Different opportunities, the scholarships, the placing out of remediation, the list goes on. And so we, as an organization, are trying to make sure that we help our partners, students, parents understand what test optional really means and to make sure that they don't get left behind in a test optional world. So you still continue to focus on
1: creating, again, more options. More options. More awareness, knowledge, awareness, skills, but also more
0: options of what resources they have access to absolutely at the end of the day again as an equity minded organization what causes inequity it's the lack of access to options so optionality is one of the most important things that we can provide to our students and teachers and schools and so that's what we're trying to do through this one very critical lever <laughs>
1: If uh, someone is listening to you now and maybe they are a superintendent or principal at the school, so part of the leadership who makes these decisions,
0: how do they become partners with you? How would you guide them? Yes. So first and foremost, I would say collegespring.org, which is our website, is the first place to go to learn more about how we work with you, what our value add could be. Um, We are really, really looking to expand our program specifically in those places where superintendents, administrators understand the value of the test. And we believe that we can make an impact not just with your students, but with your teachers as well. When you get, get to that website, you will find our contact information there. And that's just the best way to start. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to pause here and highlight the importance of the professional development for teachers. Absolutely. Because we focus a lot on students. However, also teachers need support, They need to have a partner, need to have more support probably after the year that they've had. But nonetheless, it has always been a quite demanding job and responsibility they have. So I think your program serves very well teachers as well and administrators, but teachers who are at the forefront, you know, serving our
0: students. 100%. Absolutely. I I would say that teachers are our primary and most important stakeholder. We, when we think about our theory of change, impact and change would not be possible without the teacher. So, everything that we do, our entire program is intended to wrap around the teacher and make sure that they are set up for success. And then the impact with the students will follow.
1: Beautiful. My favorite question what is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within
0: your lifetime? Access to education. I think at the end of the day, it is undeniable that that's been the theme, right? Access to education, access to options. I sincerely believe that that unlocks so many opportunities. And if I can play a part in not just providing those opportunities, but helping others, so my team, my organization, really helping them be facilitators of that as well, I would feel pretty fulfilled by that.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Yoon. Uh, wonderful learning about uh, you and your story and also the impact you are creating with your work. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Maria. Thanks
1: for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and you took away at least one idea to experiment with as you continue to make progress with your learning. I would love to hear your recommendations for guests who are disrupting how we learn, live, and work today and in the future. Please send your email to impactlearningpodcast at gmail.com. Two more things. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, Please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can always subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this particular episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.